Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. The NHS has cared for us all, but how well is it cared for? The health and care system has experienced incredible pressure in the past year or so as it has fought the COVID-19 pandemic, but it would be too easy to ignore the 20 previous years in which health has been devolved. David Cameron once called Office Dyke the line between life and death, but was that ever a fair assessment? To discuss the Welsh Government's record on health and social care, as well as its prospects for the future, joining me and Kerry, we have Sean Bendel, co-founder of That's Devolved and PhD student at Cardiff University's Wales Governance Centre, who's focusing on policy divergence and convergence in the devolved nations and English regions, focusing on health and social care policy. Hello, Sean. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for coming on. We've got Helen Wiley, who's director of the Royal College of Nursing Cymru. Hello, Helen. Hi, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you very much for coming to speak to us. And we've got Dr. Di Samuel, who's a specialist registrar in gastroenterology and general medicine at the Royal Glamorgan Hospital. Hello, Di. Hi, Matt. I actually made it to the consultant uh, level now. So, <laughs> yeah, I've been well, downgrading. But thank you very much for being here with us, Di. Um, so I wanted to start with a, with a bit of a broad question. In your opinion, how have the Welsh Government handled the health and social care portfolio in the past two decades or so of devolution? We'll start with, uh, with Sean. It's a very broad question, but at the same time, I don't think that the health and social care system is an easy thing to handle for any government. And I don't think at any point in time anybody would say that this government has got the health system absolutely perfectly right. And I think we're all very aware of some of the bad press and headlines that the health system gets in terms of hospitals and special measures or scandals which come out and waiting time targets being missed and things like that. And obviously you don't hear about the good sort of stuff that comes from the health service. And maybe over the last year, we have heard a bit more of it with the pandemic about some of the work that's been done. And I think you do lose out on some of the headlines of the stories, which are, you know, we have had seen the health system sort of become a victim of its own success. And that's becoming more and more of a theme over recent years where people are living longer, but living longer with more complex conditions and in poorer health. And I think that is something which is really, you've seen a lot, especially over the last year, having to protect those people who have those underlying conditions, those comorbidities, as they've been called, that means that it is harder to keep them healthy over things like the pandemic. And I think you've seen a lot of that over the last 20 years of devolution. The Welsh Government has put a lot of focus on those ideas around comorbidities and wider health and keeping people healthy. How successful that's been is another story altogether. And I think with any sort of health policy you pursue in Wales, and going back to that line you said about the line between life and life and death, office type being the line between life and death, Wales is always going to be compared to England. So regardless of what Wales is, statistic uh, or targets are on ambulance waiting times, we'll be compared to the English targets rather than the Welsh targets in the UK-wide media. I think that might mean that the Welsh government gets a bit of a bad rap on health when it's compared with England, but it's measured really on things which it isn't trying to compete on. And sometimes that's done quite deliberately by the governments across the UK to make sure they're not comparable. But I think it's quite a complex situation there, and that's a bit of a copper answer to say that how well the health system is doing, I'm not going to say if it's bad or good, but it's a very complex sort of question you're asking. Yeah, I think just picking up on what Sean said, I think certainly as someone, not just who works within the NHS, but who's from Merthyr, one of the, the, the areas in Wales and the UK and Europe and the world with some of the, the biggest poverty-related health challenges there. And I think we always say in clinic, a 50-year-old in our clinic is an 80-year-old elsewhere. So I think, as Sean says, we're working on, on, a, on a different level to lots of these certainly more affluent parts of, of England. But as a doctor working in the system, having trained here, 
um, there are lots of positives to, to bring out to these past 20 years. And obviously, I've been a medical student and a, and a trainee in that time and now a consultant. I think the Welsh Government value our healthcare workers perhaps slightly more than successive governments even in England have done. And certainly as a doctor, we get a lot more time compared to English colleagues to develop ourselves, um, to, to carry out professional activities. I think being smaller is often better as well. And certainly as a, as a specialist in a hospital, my relationships with my GP colleagues is, is far more positive than it is in England, where it's very adversarial at times. A good example is being referred to another specialty within hospital in England. You have to write to the GP to ask them to do it. In Wales, we just speak to our friends. So I think there's a lot, lot, of, lot of benefit there. And, and, and as Sean's touched, in England, it's very target-focused, target-centric, target-driven, but actually is meeting 95% of four-hour A&E attendances, for instance, a good target to have. We should be focusing far more on quality. And I think that's something that successive Labour governments have tried to instil. It's not perfect. And I think the biggest thing is you can always chuck money after money. Uh, and that's probably not what we're going to be able to do in the future. But I think there's been a lot of positives. There's always things we could improve on. But I think the, the Welsh Government are always willing to listen to us as doctors. And perhaps Helen will comment on listening to other healthcare workers as well. Um, yeah, and it is a really interesting debate, isn't it? And, and a very broad question. And I think um, I echo what Sean was saying is that actually, if you just put the lens of how has a government done with the health and care system, you, you, you absolutely miss the point because the health and social care of our community is reflective of our economic position, our you know abilities to live in um, nice houses with clean air and open spaces and get uh, physical exercise and all those different things and just sort of hearing uh, die there made me think of um, the inverse care law which was a kind of a standard thing you studied as a, as a as a nurse and I'm not saying how long I've been qualified but I know if I pick up the inverse care law today and read it, and to a degree, the reports, the black report, that was 1984. It is quite worrying to think that in all of that time, we haven't made as much progress as we would like. Now, I don't think that's necessarily about a particular government. I think it's very difficult to turn tankers um, and to and, and to really get that that change that takes generations doesn't it we we've still got the effects now of generations that were out of work in the 70s and and the 80s in many ways so I think Sean's point about you know the complexity of health is, is an interesting and important one having said that I do think that governments have to understand and recognize where they are part of the problem as well so I'm sure Di, you will you know reflect on four hour waits ambulances you know do we count the the number of people waiting for a hip operation and all of those things are they actually good good indicators and and I think the government was quite brave in the prudent healthcare work that it did which was really to try and challenge themselves as the policy makers but us as the clinicians and, and us as the communities to really understand what does health look like for dies patient in clinic actually what does health look like for that person what's really important and central to them because we can be guilty across the system of always wanting to do the greater good which is which is a great thing to have but actually we don't always improve individual families and people's quality of of, of life and um, contribution 
I, I do think that the Welsh government have been in, you know, the Labour Party have been in power for, for a while. I think they've got some really great policies that um, certainly the RCN has commented on, you know, look at um, the workforce strategy that, that came out just before the end of last year. There's, there's nothing in there that you wouldn't agree with about, you know, investing in our people, in our people's health, in our infrastructures. The tricky bit is actually doing the delivery of it, isn't it? And um, political cycles come along as well, don't they? So, um, you know, often it's said, if you want to get something done, do it in your first couple of years, because also the great Welsh public have absolutely every right to return to power, the people that they think will make the most improvement. So again, I don't think I've answered the question either, Matt, actually. Um, but I think what it does say for me is it is very complicated. If I was to be asked to give them a score, I'd probably give them a score of six or seven out of 10, to be honest with you, um, in a very difficult environment. And I suppose the other caveat I would love to throw into that is the Barnet Consequential, which has again been around for a long, long time. And actually the way that we've developed healthcare in Wales with very much a NHS owned model means that we are lose out when it comes to Barnet Consequential, because particularly pay, because of course I love to talk about pay and I'll talk about nurses pay, I'm sure at some point. But if you think about it, if England have sourced 10 out of 100 nurses into a private service and they then give the money to pay um, 90 nurses a pay rise, we only, we've still got 100 nurses doing NHS work. So by default, we lose out on the Barnet Consequential. And that is a reality for the Welsh Government. And that is the re also a reality of being a small country where you do have to work within, you know, the resources that, that come your way. No, thanks, Helen. I, I think we know we recognise that opening question is big on these pods. It's it's just really setting the scene, and uh, I think you all answered that quite admirably. And I think you all mentioned money and resources in the in your questions there. What would you think about if some of that money was directed more into the preventative side of uh, health and social care rather than perhaps the the more obvious reactive and the treatment of those kind of problem side? Do you think that's a possibility? And Di, can I come to you firstly on that? Yeah, thanks, Gary. I think there's two prongs here. I think, they, firstly, it's, it's, it's about that preventative medicine aspect, and certainly things like obesity. Um, you, some people argue that we shouldn't be treating obesity because it's a lifestyle choice. But as Helen's pointed out, people who live in certain communities, they, they don't make these lifestyle choices out of choice. It's their surrounding, it's their heritage, it's the belief of those families. So I think, yeah, I think we need to be investing far more in preventative medicine, making things far more equitable. I think it's, it's a lot easier to, for you to go and buy, buy a bag of chips for a pound for a family of six in the Ronda or Merthyr than it is to probably go out and buy organic food from scratch and to cook a meal. Uh, and if we, if we have people who aren't educated how to cook healthily, then that is just going to make that wheel of ill health turn and turn and turn. So I think that's the first bit. And I think we have to have a very grown-up debate, I think, in, in the post-COVID era now, about how much the health service can offer people uh, and what is the healthcare service actually designed to do. I think when Nye Bevan created the, this monster almost now in the, in the late 1940s, it wasn't designed to do what it's doing in 2021. So I think we have to have a, a collective responsibility as a society that we can't expect the NHS to fix all our ills. And we do have to take that personal responsibility to engage with services to give up smoking to reduce our alcohol consumption to, to be to live healthy lifestyles and i think hand in hand with that comes 
policies like minimum alcohol pricing, for instance, uh, and, and making better quality food cheaper so that those patients can make the right choices for their, for their futures. Helen, you mentioned the Barnet Consequential. Do you want to talk about the financial resources side? This might be a yeah, time to mention yeah. pay. I suppose the dilemma is if you is trying to move resources from one thing to another thing. People working on the front line with patients would definitely say nurses that I meet would definitely say you can't you can't say we'll stop doing that. What you have to do is pump prime some of this stuff, and you have to think about doing that for whole generations. Um, for me, that's one of the worries about losing some of the funding that we had from the European. Uh, union and a lot of that goes on social infrastructure so you know cycle paths and um, access to swimming and, and all of those types of things so I'd, I'd be very cautious about seeing a, a let's stop this in order to do that type approach because I don't think that will get us where we want to be and, and I actually reflect on um, when Jane Hart was the health minister when she first became the health minister she tried to do exactly this so she tried to move funds towards primary care and prevention and, and absolutely you know all good causes but what she got hit with then was the drift between the waiting times in England and Wales and so you know party politics politic, politics per se whatever you want to call it came came out and moved that policy in in a different direction so I think we have to be very careful about that and be very honest with the Welsh public about that I think you're right, Di, about COVID and what an opportunity that brings to us now. I think, one, we have actually done things hugely more efficiently. This week, I needed to talk to my GP. I filled in an online e-consultation. I sent a photograph of the little rash that I wanted to have treated. And I got an email back saying, please pick up your prescription. Da, 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 da. I didn't have to ring the receptionist and jump through that hurdle, take time off work, go down to the surgery, wait for half an hour. All those things were transformed overnight under, under COVID. So there's some great celebrations, isn't there, of, of new ways of doing things. And I have met nurses who have done things they never thought they could do during this pandemic. And I absolutely take my hat off to all of them. So we have learned that there are some things that we can do hugely differently. We've learned that there are some things that we can let others do as well. So we have, you know, seen more people doing things that perhaps were in the domain of nursing or in the domain of pharmacists or in the domain of medicine before and, and um, start truly thinking about how do we best support the person that needs need that service. I think there's a wider debate to be had with the Welsh public about if you want a gold standard world-class health service, at what cost are you prepared to pay for that? Um, and that could be about uh, taxation in Wales or other things. And I was interested to see the rebalancing social care paper, white paper that came out early on, on in March, because obviously social care is, an, is another element to, um, to you know, what, what do you provide funding, um, et cetera, for. And um, it does need, lead me neatly to nurses' pay. I'm, I guess you thought I would. And um, for me, investing in... Um, professionals like nurses as, as well as our social care staff and, and, and others is actually a way of investing a policy around our, our economy and ultimately if we boost our economy we we move people out of out of poverty so 
the wider finance question has to be as well about what are we prepared to pay as the great Welsh public if we want to see our services as gold standards for all of our families. Yeah, there's a few different points I wanted to pick up and largely echoing both Diane Helen. There's a, a figure from an academic much cleverer than me who says that for every pound you spend on upstreaming services, every pound you spend on that preventative work of keeping people well, you can save £14 somewhere down the line by keeping people out of engagement with hospitals to the best of your ability. And I think it goes to that point that you keep people as well for as long as possible. And when people do become ill, you have to do what you can to keep them out of that hospital setting, out of that acute sector, and in the community setting, which is just, put it bluntly, cheaper for the whole health system. You save by several factors, by somebody in a care setting, it's several factors cheaper than somebody in an NHS hospital bed, on top of all the problems that um, creates for the demand on the service and that awful term of bed blocking, which isn't a very nice term, but it is that reality. And I think it does go back to that sort of point that one of the widest, biggest determinants of how healthy you will be is how well off you are. And I think it does sort of come into that as well about making sure that those services are in place that promote people's health. And I think that's something you have, again, coming back to what Helen said about accepting the long-term cost of this, that you can't just cut a service that's in place now and expect it to be switched on tomorrow morning that will have a perfect preventative health system. It's expensive to start with. If Wales or the Welsh government was to put in a programme tomorrow that talked about healthy eating for children in schools, you may not see the financial savings of that for decades. But you've still, and you've still then got to provide the services that you do at the moment for improving people's lifestyles. And I think that's the major point of it's not easy to do. It's costly to do to start with. It is the right thing to do, probably, to improve people's quality of life. But it's going to take a very long time to do it. The same sort of applies to the social care sector as well, where you do need to make sure that staff are well paid enough, well trained and motivated enough to help play their role properly in providing the services you need to to keep people well and out of a hospital setting and saving money in the system overall. Obviously, social care workers have done an awful lot over the course of the pandemic, and I know we'll probably come back onto this later about pay and recognition and stuff like that, but it is a very poorly paid profession. I think less than half of them earn the real living wage if you work in social care. So you have the situation of people who are really the cornerstone of this system, of providing that preventative service, keeping people out of the hospital setting, who aren't paid a wage that recognises the role that they do play within that system. And that's obviously going to create a knock-on effect when you do lose skilled staff who might be quite good at their jobs to a new Tesco's opening down the road or something like that, just because the hours are more sociable and the pay is better. I think in a wider scope as well, if you look at more long-term the way that the UK itself and the different nations have attempted to prioritise their spending... I think Wales, as Helen was saying when Jane Hutt was the health secretary, it was seen as quite radical, the approach in Wales to the sort of preventative medicine and disinvesting from traditional acute services to promote health. But the political reality get caught up and it goes back to that point I made earlier about Wales being benchmarked and things it wasn't trying to do. And I think that's one of the great examples of it, that Wales was seen as trying to deliver very local, very community focused solutions to healthcare and trying to use its money in a smarter way, but that doesn't make for good headlines. And it's very hard to explain to people that 
you may have to wait an extra couple of months for your surgery or you may have to wait slightly longer for this treatment so in 20 years time we can have a healthier population and i think that's a very hard argument to make and i don't think any politician has been able to make that fully effectively to this point and i don't think the public quite got that idea around preventative health care they understand eat well eat healthily but explaining something that's quite complex and especially when people are talking about their tax and their health service and that just seeing it as well my hospital might shut or lose money it's very hard to sell that idea to people and it does create this system where as having said it's hard to turn a tanker and completely change generational attitudes towards the delivery of health and social care there's quite a few ideas around social care so Clyde have suggested a national care service uh, I think in Scotland they've merged their health and social care sector. Do you, is there, do you think, um, a desirable solution for how we handle social care? Yes, yeah, a great question. I think this is probably the aspect uh, of overall health that has never been grasped properly by successive Labour governments. I think we've heard lots about integrated care, joined up thinking, joined up working. But essentially, in the real world, in hospitals, it's still very disjointed trying to get the back door moving, that's what's crushing and, and crippling hospitals. It is in the front door. We can always manage the people at the front door. It's real joined up thinking, real joined up working and, and truly integrated care. And again, once they've gone out of hospital, I think having really high quality social care and a service, a joined up service, again, prevents readmissions. We see lots of people readmitted because that social aspect is broken down. And if we get the social aspects right, it's a bit like preventative health they won't come into hospital in the first place, these patients. So I think it is it is crucial. I think how will that work in reality with all these different sectors uh, and different organisations? That, that That's the big challenge. And I certainly, as someone who works in liver disease and substance misuse, there are so many brilliant organisations out there within the social sector that offer patients and clients help. But because they're all fighting for the same pot of money, the efforts are often very disjointed. And when you ask them why it's so difficult to navigate the system. It's, it's that very reason. They say, because if we don't do this differently or better, we won't get money next year. And I think that's the biggest problem, really, is it, it, there's too many people fighting for the same pot of money. So I think a national care service integrated within the healthcare system would probably be very beneficial, not just for the patients, but for those organisations themselves providing that care. This, in terms of my actual PhD research, just focuses quite a lot on what I look at. And I think... I agree with Di that this is the way that it needs to go in terms of, especially make, going back to the finance point earlier, making the, the getting the best bang for your buck, really, in terms of the public monies, as well as providing those best services. Because I think, ultimately, to sort of put it this way, that Mrs. Jones doesn't care who provides the service. She cares that it's a good service and it's provided in a timely manner. And I think that's sort of the aim of social, the integration of health and social care is to break down those barriers that you would see between the GP, the hospital, and then back out into the community. But I think the problem you get there is, and what makes it very hard, is that the GP and the hospital are both separate organizations and GPs are private practice, but they're still a health sector. You then make the jump into local government. You're then moving from people who are trained in the medical profession, speak a medical sort of language, to people who aren't trained in the medical profession necessarily. And it goes back to that point I made earlier about some of the poor paying conditions and recognition for social care staff, especially in the domiciliary care area. And you obviously head into areas of those allied health professions like social workers and OTs and things like that. And you are crossing a boundary there. 
And I think that's something that's very hard to do and a very difficult policy to get right. Because when you ask any two organizations to work together, it's difficult. And if they're the place they're coming from and their understanding of a problem is different to start with, they may agree on the solution. The solution and the journey that you're going on is to make a better service for the service user or the patient. But if somebody understands that as a medical problem and somebody sees a social factor to it, and I'm not, these are very sweeping blanket statements, obviously, both professions understand a degree of what each other's doing. And I don't want to be here as the academic insulting medical professionals, but you do get the situation that makes it very hard to cross that boundary and to integrate these services. And even if you just think about it in those sort of simple terms, if you work for the NHS and you're a doctor or a nurse, there's rightly a, a lot of kudos for that. And there's a very high regard held for these uh, people who do these very difficult jobs and some amazing things in medicine. But then you don't necessarily get that same recognition for the social care worker. And that's another element of it is how the public sees these two different roles. Because uh, someone once put it very bluntly to me that doctors, the you know, multi-million pound hospitals, well-paid, well-trained many years and nurses the same. Whereas the social care workers are employed by the same people who employ bin men and not to insult bin men, but it does affect the public perception of those different roles. And you do just get these two completely different professional cultures. And I think when you've got some commitments in the manifestos, especially applied to bring the health and social care system together, while it's the right thing to do, it's going to be incredibly difficult because you don't just have to convince the staff members this is the right thing to do in the public. You've also got to convince local government to give up or health to give up some of its control over its domain that it's held since the 1940s, since the National Assistance Act and the National Health Act created the system. So you're really undoing 80 years of entrenched cultural and systemic differences to deliver a better service. And that's not easy is the blunt way to put it. So there, there are some things to learn from around um, other countries and um, certainly England's experience of commissioning groups is quite interesting to see where they try to do something more joined up. And if you go to England, you'll find a lot of health visitors employed in local authorities. Not all of that has been hugely successful. Obviously, in uh, the Scandinavian countries, you've got the Bortseg model, which I can't say very well, which is about trying to wrap community teams around families. And we're trying some of that here in Wales, which is, um, you know, very exciting and uh, some different sorts of approaches. And, and we've done a number of other things. And um, I remember down in Tembe, in Tembe Hospital, the hospital itself was closed. So beds were commissioned in a in a care home, in a way of trying to, you know, integrate provision at a local level. And Powys was put forward as a pathfinder as well, wasn't it, in terms of sharing funding with the local council, which again, didn't didn't end up in the space where perhaps we thought it would. And I understand that, that arrangement doesn't happen anymore. So um, I, th I think for me, there's a couple of elephants in the room. One is about paying for care. So if you're in health, you don't pay and um, Mrs Jones might want the right service in the right time but Mr and Mrs Jones also would prefer for that to be provided by the state please and um, in the same way that the NHS is and many of us of work in, in NHS services know that sometimes that fee issue is a neat reason why it's difficult to get people to the place that they they are best looked after and cared for if ever there was a lens for the public to see what social care does this is the time, you know, watching stories on the television of um, of care homes, staff moving into them because they 
they had to move in in order to care for people. The value of our loved ones being well looked after has come out in this pandemic more than I think any of us could ever have imagined. So potentially as a society, we might start to think that's got more value to each of us as well. People dying in care homes tends to be not in the public view. But in this pandemic, we have literally seen families who've had to stand outside windows when their loved ones have passed away. So, you know, what price is there to put on the, the compassion and human nature of those staff that made that as, as painless and as memorable for families? There isn't a price that you can put on that, but we've never really valued that as a society. That's, that's the truth of, of, of where we've been. So, I mean, I certainly do favour integration. I think in terms of one big organisation, I would just say a little buyer beware. We need to be careful about what does that actually look like? So is one big organisation the right way to do that? Or is it more about integrated provision? And for me, that first aspect about sorting out who pays will take us a massive step forward on the integration agenda. It will also help us think about the, um, the aspect about staff. So that's another reason why we don't have that integration is that it will, it will cost a lot of money. There's no doubt if you work in the NHS as a um, healthcare support worker, you get paid more than if you work in a care home as a, as a care assistant. Um, so for me, two big elephants in the room are one, the cost for the family and two, the cost to even up the terms and conditions. Excited to see work started on that. It probably is a bit of a journey. You know, we have seen work start on that and I've been involved in a, in a group that are trying to look at um, fair pay in the social care sector but the sooner we do it the better because that's when we'll really make some huge strides towards an integration agenda whether that's one big organization or local hubs or whatever that might look like well there is this sort of thing with the health and social care system that there has been an awful lot of work over the years to try and integrate those these services and at the moment and i think if you're looking at the two sort of models which are debated and one represented by that integrated health and social care single system approach you do have the other, which is the sort of regional partnership board approach, which you have in Wales at the moment, which Scotland and England have their variations of as well. Where you do have one that's free at the point of use and another one which is charged for. And Scotland's tried to eliminate some of that problem by having free personal care for the elderly. Even that is a very complex system because free personal care for the elderly is bounded, as in hotel charges or the part that you pay to stay at a care home is not necessarily free. And that depends and that's means tested. Whereas something like personal carers would be free, but then say someone to do cleaning around your house wouldn't necessarily be free in that sort of scenario. So even that's a very complex system that you've really got to balance out. And looking around the UK, they're all sort of facing the same problems and the same sort of realities. It is just very hard. And a lot of it does stem from the fact that you have the Westminster UK government that does set the budgets overall, as sort of Helen mentioned originally with the Barnet formula. And the truth of it is local authorities are strapped for cash at the moment. So in terms of paying those better wages and upping the conditions for social care staff, you've seen the opposite of that really over the last few years, not by design, but simply by the fact that local government has to commission harder and harder to get as much money as it can for an aging population that is living longer. And you really need to find something that breaks the cycle that we're in at the moment, which does see the health system 
which is under pressure, trying to then move people out as the right thing to do into a care system, which is under even more pressure. Helen just talked about big organisations, and I don't think anyone would deny that the NHS in Wales is a, is a big organisation. But the Conservatives in their manifesto have a plan to make it independent from the government in Wales. Do you think that's credible, Di? Isn't that just a return to sort of the Quango land of the 90s? Yeah, I'd be very concerned about this independent um, stance. And I think I'm very much someone who doesn't really fully agree with the private sector. I think private organisations have their benefits, but I think you can't have organisations and health boards, stroke organisations operate in totally independent of government. Uh, I think, number one, where's the accountability there? It is a national health service and, and the public will still be paying for those services. So if, if you're at arm's length and, you, and you're making decisions that perhaps aren't the best for your population, then who is actually going to hold those, those people to account? And I think without touching on individual examples, I think there's been quite a lot in the media recently about perhaps um, connections to companies by politicians. And I think that would only open up the doors for even more of those connections where you perhaps might be perhaps rewarding a contract to a company, perhaps not for the right reasons, but because perhaps it makes your pocket feel a little bit heavier. So I would certainly want to keep the status quo and I'd want government fully involved in a two-way dialogue to, to produce a, a world-class health service for, for everyone, which is also equitable and equal across the patch as well. I, I think the central thing for me is that accountability and scrutiny. You know, when I go to the polls, I'm electing someone to represent me in... Um, the assembly, that's part of the parliament. That's not just about the government. So and I expect that person, whether they're in the government or not, to be able to scrutinize how um, money is spent and services provided in, in Wales, not just on health, but education and then all the other things that happen. So if you put an arm's length between the government and the NHS, then I, I can't see how that scrutiny would, would work effectively. So um, on that basis, uh, and, and I haven't read the detail of the um, Conservative manifesto, but on that basis, I, I tend to favour ensuring that Welsh ministers are fulfilling the obligations that are in the current legislation that we have. And I would reference the Nurse Staffing Levels Act, of course, um, and that, that is done through a scrutiny process in our Senate. I'm not entirely sure what uh... The Conservatives envision that sort of new arm's length body taking, but I think it's very comparable with the system you've had in England since the Lansley reforms in 2012, where um, I think there's an article in the King's Fund which describes it as the world's biggest quango, NHS England. And the idea, I assume, being to carry on and detach it from government and have that independent sort of arm's length organisation. But Wales has really gone quite the opposite way from that over the years, where it started out in at devolution with that broken up market system with the internal purchase provider split and that was got rid of in 2008-2009 whereas England went further down that route but even England now has started to pull back from that broken up system of NHS delivery where you've seen the ICSs being talked about and coming in recently where they have as I said everywhere has a very similar sort of structure for integrating health and social care and that's part of it it's bringing the clinical commissioning groups and the trusts and all those organisations under at least one committee to discuss how best to deliver and commission services. And I would sort of wonder how necessarily that would work or benefit Wales, really, especially in Wales, where it is a very small country. We have seven health boards and maybe 
my impression I've got from lots of people, especially on the sort of service planning and delivery side, is one advantage of Wales's small size is that at direct access to government, there's not one per, there's not some organisation which acts as a block in between that they can, if they need to, have that sit and have that conversation with the health minister or one of their deputies or one of their senior um, civil servants within the Welsh Health Department. In England, there is that level of disconnect. And when you speak to people there, they may have a contact at Public Health England or at NHS England, but not necessarily that direct input into government. And it does go back to that point Helen was making that the health service is a huge service. It's one of the most recognisable things government deliver. And it is already relatively detached compared to some other services like education or social care, which have the direct councillor accountability through a democratic means. It goes back to a minister and to the Senate. You're just adding another step of accountability in there. And even when England did do this and bring in a system that was at arm's length from the minister, you still had stories of Jeremy Hunt, who was the health minister who took over when this was done in England, who would have a Monday morning meeting with all the heads of services. So while it wasn't formal, he would still have this input into the system. So it's an interesting one. And I think the Conservatives need to put a bit more meat on the bones to explain what they mean by it before we can probably judge it. But instinctively, it, not sure how that would work. Yeah, just touching on what Sean said, you know, I think far, far from being more independent, I'd like to see far more integration between the health boards. I think there's still these artificial barriers between health boards. And as Sean says, we're such a small nation. We have the expertise here, albeit not much of it. And when it comes to the more specialist services, I, I'm, I do a lot of endoscopies, for instance, and you need certain advanced endoscopies that you can't provide in every health board. But it's so bureaucratic at the moment, and there are so many barriers to develop services with our colleagues. We, we get on very well as colleagues in general in Wales, and I think having far more of that rather than allowing these organisations to go off on their own little tangents, I think would be a very dangerous thing for the NHS in the years to come, personally. Yeah, I, I'd echo that on the social care of uh, 22 local authorities as well, David. It's not for me to make these comments. Um, Helen, uh, this, this is off script a little bit, but I was at Huston's this morning at a local high school in Cardiff. And one of their key questions was around mental health. I, I, I think that's a massive issue going forward. And I, I just wonder what the, the panel the guests thinking on, you know, how we should approach that in the next administration and further ahead. Well, it won't surprise you to hear me say we need more investment in mental health services and actually in mental health nurses. And over the last few years, we have seen um, a, an increase in the total number of nurses being um, commissioned into education programmes. But actually, that's been more adult nursing at the detriment of mental health nursing. So for, for, for nursing, um, we are likely to have a lack of mental health nurses into the future because we just haven't been training enough and um, and that's a shame we don't have enough nurses now we've got you know significant vacancies in the nhs let alone outside of that so um i think we do need to think about how we prepare and invest in services some of that should also be about the self-serve model and what people can do for themselves. And, you know, mental health isn't always about receiving services, is it? So more social prescribing, the development of, of social prescribing. And that in a world where we could go swimming and have social interactions with one another was, was a lot easier than it is now. I think what probably what the school children are highlighting is the, the compounding effect of, of COVID, of being in... Um, you know, a lockdown environment where you can't have normal social interactions. Um, I think young people are right to be worried about the COVID effect on mental health going forward. But 
I think as communities, we need to think carefully and creatively about how we can deal with that. Some of that is services, personnel, professionals, planning, but some of it is also about what we could do in our societies and communities. Di, I loved your quote um, about dealing with things at the back door, at the front door rather, it's the problems at the back door, but I've been told anecdotally that a lot of your front door kind of issues are mental health related. You know, have you got any thoughts on the mental health side of things? Oh, hugely. Um, as, as someone who, as I say, my day job is, is hepatology, so I deal a lot with alcohol addiction, cirrhosis, substance misuse, and yeah, it's, it's a massive issue, and I, I can put their livers back on the horse. But unless we sort out the underlying reasons why these people turn to substance misuse and alcohol, and, and I think we have to remove the taboo and stigma of mental health. Successive governments and then talk time and time again about removing this stigma, but it's still very much a stigmatised problem. And actually, as Helen's very, very kindly pointed out, the, the whole of society is probably suffering from a mental health disorder at the moment in some form or another. And I think we need to destigmatize that. We need to make it normal to not be normal. Uh, and I think we really need to invest properly in, in these services and really try and unpick the underlying reasons why they turn to, to alcohol substance use in the first place. A lot of these guys have come out of the armed services or have had very, very traumatic childhoods. We just haven't got the services there, the psychologists, et cetera, to actually input into these individuals and turn their lives around. Um, and I think, again, coming back to psychiatry in general, it's very much seen still as a Cinderella service. I think if you can sort the top 2% out, the other 90% of the body will follow. Especially with mental health, you do see quite long waiting times to access these services and they don't necessarily get the same um, level of publicity as waiting times for um, cancer treatments or for surgeries or things like that, which do make headline news if you miss that. But when a counselling service, maybe with a local GP surgery, might hit 18 months or two years to be able to refer it onto those mental health services, they do get missed basically. And I think there is that of, it's not considered in the same way as Di said, as your traditional hospital-based acute services. And I think building on those sort of mental health services, you get the same a lot with um, disability services, especially when it comes to things like neurodiversity, which do suffer from a, a lot of the same sort of problems, which a lot of the overlap and the sort of staff required to deal with these being psychologists and things like that, or psychiatrists even that you do have these other areas which are really important to maintaining people's well-being and keeping them out of those big expensive hospitals that do get overlooked and don't get the attention that they should. And I think it does come back to that thing about the NHS being a bit of a firefighting service. And by the time you get through the doors of a hospital, it's already something's gone wrong in your life. You don't get there as somebody, suddenly it can happen, but a lot of people do end up in hospital with quite complex health conditions which have had to have developed over a very long time and as I said that if you can deal with mental health issues you can deal with a lot of the other comorbidities so to speak around diet and exercise and substance misuse and things like that and it doesn't just keep people well and make them better off you do save money in the health service and you save money in plenty of other services if somebody has mental health issues which leads to homelessness that's one of the biggest determinants of health if you are homeless you are going to be a very unhealthy person and you're going to put a lot of strain and demand on plenty of other services like police and local council shelter services and things like that. So it becomes a very complex problem. And again, it's one of those things that if you can nip it in the bud at the earliest possible opportunity to keep the person well and healthy, not only does it have the benefit for that person, but it has a wider societal benefit of not overstretching services and allowing money 
to do other things. One of the th- one of the things it just shows is is the scale of this particular sector, and uh, you know we're trying to do it justice in an hour. It's virtually impossible, particularly with one of our final questions. Um, you know, we're, we're hopefully emerging from the pandemic at the moment. Like, how Helen, do you think that the healthcare sector can recover from the pandemic? Are there things that you see that are going to have changed completely? We're not going to go back, and there'll be a new part of the the health profession, like digital consultations. Yeah, I think firstly we should remember that we're almost certainly going to have a third wave. So, um, whilst we're coming out into a lockdown now, we don't know what the third wave will look like. But I'll, I'll park that to one side. So, and um, I spoke earlier about you know e consultation through primary care, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I, I genuinely think we won't we won't lose some of that great stuff that we've done. Um, and, and that's to be celebrated, you know, sometimes it takes a pandemic to get us into a space to do things that we've always wanted to do, but we couldn't quite get there. Um, and I think that's across the piece, you know, um, definitely across the piece. So um, I, I think, you know, things like the tradition of being in the hospital to see the consultant in the outpatients department, well, we've done all of that on Zoom. It's been better for, for patients, I would say, probably better for the staff as well more efficient people are there so of course why why would you not want to keep those good things moving forward but um we also have a significant backlog now of people waiting for normal nhs activity children waiting for hearing tests people waiting for bone density scans or uh, mris or you know other things now in the second wave my understanding talking with my members was that some core activities that we stopped first time around we did manage to keep those going but we do still have some significant um issues with getting services back up and running and we've got a staff you know and i i speak to nurses and quite honestly most of them are exhausted they've already been doing double backs turnarounds you know plus for nursing running a vaccination program running a test and trace system that's predominantly been led by nursing so there is something in here about the workforce because um these services are about the people that provide them aren't they we can order beds we know that we just built a whole load of field hospitals they're bits of metal the important bit are the people that make all of that happen and the you know the consultants like die whose waiting lists now are probably more than he's ever experienced before that's our collective issue isn't it here somehow we got to help to prioritize in the first phase of getting services back haven't we so we've got to think about need and that's where i was saying earlier about you know governments think about how much of the problem you can be as well don't give the service targets and things to me that will drive behaviours that won't be good for the outcomes for the populations. It's so easy to do in, in the government. Of course it is, because you, you think it's, it can be the right, the right thing. And it's done with good intention, but it's unintended consequences can be quite significant because I think we're looking at four or five years before we catch up. And as much as I'd love it, you can't knit nurses or wave magic wands and get um, doctors and pharmacists, etc ready and in so even with all the creativity in the world we've still got a huge challenge on our hands Di you've been a fantastic advocate for your profession and your community talking about the pandemic what what, what have you what's your take on where we're going to go 
Yeah, it's been a tough 12 months. Uh, just reflecting on what Helen said then, I think some of the things have been great, these virtual clinics, um, but you can only do so much of that. And certainly in, in my specialty with endoscopies, we are facing horrendous weights. We, we were before COVID because of the demand, cancer work, et cetera, and non-cancer work. And we're now facing the possibility of not doing any routine work for one or two years. I think as Helen says, up front, we have to have a very honest government, whoever's elected next month, and saying this will not change in five years. And I think my biggest fear really is, is quick fixes. There's already talks within health boards right across Wales about having private companies in sourced in to help with endoscopy weights and, and Saturday and Sunday lists being done by these. That, that, that's great. That might get rid of the waiting list for now, but they'll come back. So invest up front now for a sustainable service going forward so we will manage it in the long term. Um, Helen's also touched on, on the point about our workforce. There's been lots of wild promises about a thousand doctors here and umpteen thousand nurses there. Yeah, where, where, where are we going to get them from? Because 50% of consultant posts across the UK are vacant at the moment. So, so there aren't the consultants there. If you train a thousand extra medical students today, they will take five years to qualify. So there's your first term before they become doctors. You've then got to train them for 10 years to get to the situation where I am now as a consultant. So that's three terms worth of government. So I think making the public understand what these promises actually mean in reality is really important here. And again, being honest um, and having to be honest with the public, our GP colleagues, to say this is what we can and can't do. And yes, we know you've got, I don't know, irritable bowel syndrome or really bad reflux, but unfortunately, all our resources are going to have to go on those with cancer for the next probably six to 12 months. And after that, those with other life-threatening conditions. And then hopefully we'll be in a position to treat you in two or three years' time. And that is a very uncomfortable discussion to have and one that I've already had to have. And as a clinical lead in the hospital, it is not something that I'm enjoying doing at all, but it's something that we've got to do and we've got to front up to it now and really start the hard work. And in some ways, the pandemic was the easy bit because we knew the type of things that would happen. We'd know we'd have these waves of people coming in this is totally uncharted territory. And I, and I don't think any politician or healthcare worker really knows what, what the next few years lie in terms of what's ahead for us and our patients. We're in a situation and obviously acknowledging what my co-panelists have said, knowing that they're the sort of medical professionals here, that there's sort of an attitude you can take of don't let a crisis go to waste, that you have had this situation where the health service and the social care system and everything has been laid out bare bones and you can see exactly where the points where it struggled to react in a crisis were. So you've got this opportunity now to really start rebuilding elements of it from the ground up. And I think that's what you need some vision in the next government, whoever it may be, to take this chance to really make some of the changes that we've all sort of discussed about improving the way we um, pay and for staff members about the sort of services that are delivered, about the ways in which they're delivered, and not leaving some of the things like we sort of said about um, telemedicine and things like that go to waste, those innovations which have happened through the pandemic, but taking the chance now to say that you have a bit of a clear slate to make those changes and making sure that they are done in a sustainable way. And as I said, there's sort of no point in saying that you're going to spend all the money on clearing the services if there's not the support and the social care aspects afterwards to make sure people stay out of hospital and you don't end up a lot of surgeries now to have people just coming back into the hospital with other complications due to it because the system is still going to be under so much strain for such a large amount of time. If you could, in one line, 
say the one policy change you would like to see after the election, what would it be? I'll start with uh, with Sean. Not so much a policy, but like the sort of what we talked about, changing the way we think about health and social care delivery to not be about sickness, but be about wellness and really commit to a focus on that, about keeping people well and out of a hospital setting and just improving qualities of life that way and make that the commitment and focus of healthcare going forward. Dine? Yeah, I'll, I'll cheat and perhaps have to. Um, Helen <laughs> pay a lot, and I think pay certainly for our lower-paid healthcare workers is paramount here. That they saved us in this crisis. Not not us doctors paid a lot of money. The healthcare workers are some of them on the breadline. So I think that's the first one, and the other one we've touched on it. Rather than these quick fix or, or very headline-hitting targets, four hours in A and E, for instance. Let's have some real health quality outcome measures. Let's, let's talk about patient-related experiences and patient-related outcomes. That's what tells you whether your service is good, not whether you're seen in three minutes, 15, uh, three hours 59 rather than four hours and one minute in A&E. Helen? I, I would definitely echo the invest in your workforce because they will they'll stay with you for the long haul and, and they've got the solutions as well. So investing in the workforce, both health and social care. Um, for me, carers and social care which is predominantly women's work as well is important and should be reconsidered in terms of where do we set our principles and and policies moving forward um investing in the workforce i also in, include in that investing in students i think that will stand us in good stead and and then i guess the third policy area for me is about partnerships i take that as the broader integration work as well as how we work with people, the people that use the services. We've, we've got some great partnerships there, but we could do those better as well. And we could do better in our, our partnerships around and across the piece. And I lay that in health and local authority as well as regional partnership um, working too. So I think that's another key policy area that I'd like to see the next government really embrace to make work. Last but not least, the question I think we all are thinking about in this next week or so, what do you think the result of the election will be? Not what you want, but what you think will we'll happen. Honestly, I, I don't know. I think, um, you know, I do read the uh, opinion polls and they tend to be pretty good in the UK, don't they? So you're probably better asking an opinion poll person um, rather than me. It's not my business is nursing more than um, what would the outcome of the election be. Um, I think for me, what whatever it is, I will be seeking early contact with that government to ensure that the voice of nursing and the people that nurses look after is, is well listened to. And I will be seeking to make that work in the best way that it will be. Um, I believe the opinion polls are saying it's likely that we will see a very mixed result and, and that we won't see a, any party having a, a majority. So um, if that's the case, then um, we'll watch until the smoke rises on whoever's been able to build that partnership that I was just talking about to um, form enough votes to form a government. Dine? Yeah, I was. I, I, be careful because I was accused of being a mad activist on Twitter this week uh, for my political views. But uh, personally, I think it's probably going to be applied Labour coalition. I think the the impact of the pandemic, in particularly, has probably hit Labour's votes. And certainly, driving through the Ronda last Wednesday it was lovely. Going through the high street in in Port in um, Triorchy and that, and seeing all the boards out. And I think there it's very much a fifty fifty between Plaid and Labour. So that's going to be a, a fabulous seat to watch. But I, I think. 
a coalition probably will be healthy for politics as well. And I think coalitions often, often that check and balance, which I probably think we need actually after such a prolonged period of, of just Labour in power. Well, uh, me and Sean are currently working on the uh, co-partnered That's Devolve and Here I Prediction video. So I'm going to end our predictions with Sean. What do you think the result will be? I think it's going to be very boring, to be honest with you. I, as the political nerd in me, would love to see some complex negotiations going on after the election, but I think you're going to be in a situation where it's going to be what the story of devolution so far in Wales, where Welsh Labour tend to fall just short of a majority and then need to reach an agreement with either Plaid or the Lib Dems to um, prop them up. And I think that's going to be the case again. But don't quote me on that. Oh, we will quote you on that, don't worry. <laughs> uh, thanks so much to all of you for coming on and talking to us tonight. If people want to find you on social media, where can they discover what you've got to say? Sean? My personal account, which is the more boring, is at smbendel, or if you want the interesting stuff I do, it's at that's devolved. Helen, do you have a Twitter account? Uh, yes, I do. I use at Helen Wiley, and obviously RCN Wales has a at RCN Wales Twitter account as well. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Helen. And, and Di? Yeah, mine's very simple, at Doc Di. Well, thank you very much again to all of you for coming on. And if you want to hear more from us at Hereife, please find us on Medium at Hereife Blog Cymru, on Facebook at Hereife Blog Cymru, and on Twitter at Hereife Blog. Thank you for listening to Hereife. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review.